Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Club. Hey everybody, it is James and we are here with a special edition of the Science Night Podcast. I know you are so excited to see this pop up in your feed in an off week, but what you're about to hear is a recording from the Science of Science Fiction panel that Indiana Sciences put together for Gen Con Online, which happened on Thursday, July 30th. Now, you can go to Indiana Science's YouTube page and watch the entire recording of this with video, so you can see all of the images that are put up on the screen. And you can also check out the Q&A, which took place after this recording finished. Thank you so much to Rufus at Indiana Sciences for allowing me to present at this event. Thank you to all of the presenters. Thank you for everyone that was there be sure to go and follow Indiana Sciences wherever you can find them. You will not be disappointed. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to let the recording just take over, and I will check in at the end. My name is Rufus Cochran. I am the uh, executive director of Indiana Sciences. We are a small nonprofit uh, based here in Indianapolis that does science communication and education. We do programs like this um, at, at conventions and different events throughout the city. And our whole goal really with these presentations are to hopefully provide a little bit of education, but really to just invoke a little bit of wonder and hopefully give you that spark that no matter what age you are, no matter where you're at in your life, that little spark to just learn something else, to just kind of dig in a little bit more and learn a little bit more about the natural world around you. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our speakers for the evening. A really awesome lineup for you today. Our first speaker will be James Reed, the director uh, director of the Anatomy Laboratory at the Giesel School of Medicine. And he, looking at uh, your Twitter, James, you are a licensed funeral director, for which I am fascinated to learn more at, uh, learn more about from Dartmouth. Um, and next, we have Professor Jason Organ. Jason Organ is the Associate Professor of Anatomy and Cell Biology and Physiology at the IU School of Medicine. Fantastic science communicator, does a lot with us, and his talk is actually absolutely fantastic. And then finally, Matt Sowers, the lead mechanical engineer at Radius Innovation and Development, holds several patents um, at biomedical and handheld technology companies throughout Indiana. Really wealth of knowledge. Really happy to have these three speakers here. And tonight's theme is going to be fantasy, monsters, D&D, traps and physics. James, if you want, I will turn the baton over to you. Um, and we'll share your screen and we'll get started. Perfect. I will, I will, I will grab the clicker from you. I'm virtually grabbing the slide advancer. Um, and I will share my screen. How's everyone doing while I, while I do things? Can everyone hear me? Awesome. Awesome. I'm here to talk about cryptids and 
when I first got this call, I was like, oh, you know, I'll talk about cryptids. And I went to put this presentation together, but I didn't really put like a ton of effort into the title. I mean, as you can see, it's just cryptids right here. And I was like, well, this is like a sciencey talk. It deserves a sciencey name. So I was like looking at what I'm going to talk about. And I was like, okay. The anthropology of cryptozoology I was like, well, a sciencey talk deserves a subtitle, but I couldn't think of one. Um, so we'll go with this. Tonight, I am going to approach the topic of cryptids using an anthropological framework. Yeah, everyone's really excited and with me still. Anthropology is the study of humanity, specifically their evolution and culture. But I'm going to do it in like a, a fun way. I promise that I will not mention the hegemony of Yeti culture, and I will not explore the internal and external culture of Jersey Devils using a post-processual approach. I promise I will not do that, and that is probably the last jargon I'm going to use today. But what I am going to talk about is how these awesome creatures have kind of woven their way into our folklore and changed over time. But we have to like start out by saying, what is a cryptid? So, first off, cryptids are cool. I mean, look at these things. They're huge. They are enigmatic. They are the markers of the edge of the map. So when you see, here there be monsters, there they are. Um, they are also the things that capture our imagination and warn us about the consequences of venturing too far from... Well, there's a lot of justified criticism about this person's scientific techniques. I think Bernard Hovelman's definition of a cryptid is pretty good. He states, a cryptid must contain one trait that is truly singular, striking, emotionally upsetting, and thus capable of mythification. Right? That kind of states it all. And now that we've defined what a cryptid is, let's talk about how they've worked their way into our culture and how they change over the time. So we're going to see how to become a modern cryptid in just three easy steps. And we're going to use two subjects as a test case the entire way through this. Many of the most well-known cryptids that you can think of began as figures in an indigenous culture. And while there is tons of variation in each culture, they tend to kind of serve as a being that's tasked with protecting something. And it has to be stated that it's either protecting it for or from that culture. They're not all like super good at the beginning, but some are. So I think you can see my, my mouse here. I'm hovering over uh, a, a uh, mask from the Lenape culture, which originally lived in the area that now consists of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York. And like you can tell from my hat, this is my area. I grew up with this mask kind of all over the place. Uh, their culture included these mask figures. They called Misingui. And they acted as a keeper of game animals in their hunting grounds. 
And then over to the right, hopefully the zoom isn't cutting it off, but you can see um, a, a creature from the Highland Nepalese culture. Specifically, what we're going to talk about is its use in Sherpa culture. And we do have to note that Sherpa are a people, not a profession. Um, but this is the Meto Kangmi, or as most of us know as the Yeti. And the Yeti were, were known for protecting sacred peaks. But they were a lot less important in these cultures than we in the West like to kind of give them credit for. If everyone's been to Walt Disney World, you've seen how important the Yeti is to Nepalese culture. But it's they, they've overblown it just a little bit. So now, like, we've established how these creatures kind of begin their lives in folklore. And now we're going to move on to colonialism. So step two is to be co-opted into a colonial European morality tale. Uh, and especially in North America, strict religious and governmental hierarchy was imposed to make sure that the community survived. Now, it does have to be noted that these communities didn't try to like adapt to their local environments, but they just improve, in, impose these moral and governmental structures on their people. But that's probably a conversation for another day. Now, in the same order, uh, we have the popular depiction of the Jersey Devil. So this is a combination of those Masingwe masks mixed with uh, uh, like demonic interpretations from European folklore. Uh, and the story goes that a woman in Leeds, New Jersey, while giving birth to her 13th child, and I am assuming that is found that it is the 13th child, uh, exclaimed, let this one be a devil. And it was, because the story would just kind of end there if it wasn't. Um, and this kind of kept children in line, and it really kept them from like wandering off into the Pine Barrens, because I don't really think I would want to see this. Now, interestingly, this actual sketch was done after a version of the Jersey Devil that was shown in Philadelphia, uh, but that was actually a kangaroo that a group of guys took from the Buffalo Zoo, painted striped black and white, uh, attached wings to it, and would poke it with a stick that had a nail attached to it to get it to jump and scream and stuff. So, you know, not great, but you can see how this is kind of becoming more of a morality tale and not this, like, protector spirit. And then on the right, we have the Yeti, which morphed into the abominable snowmen. Uh, and I kind of grew up watching like Bugs Bunny cartoons and Daffy Duck cartoons with the abominable snowmen that is just kind of coming out of, of the tundra and, and doing something. Uh, now, that name came from British explorer C.K. Howard Burry, who reported seeing something while surveying Everest. And he kind of asked his Sherpa guide what that was. And the guide responded, Metu Kongme. But he wrote it down as Metach or Mech Kongme. So that changed the name from wild man to filthy man. And that's where the abominable part of abominable snowmen come. And this is like the beginning of that big hairy man trope that we just love to throw in modern cryptid folklore uh most most areas that have woods have a sighting of their local big hairy man um and also because this is so closely linked to linked to colonialism uh 
This is an effort to create an other in the wilderness that is just human enough to be transposed onto some of the more remote indigenous cultures, which is like super depressing to think about when you're riding the Matterhorn or the Expedition Everest roller coaster next time. So, you know, think about everything as we're all thinking about everything now. Now, the final form of turning into what we would consider a modern cryptid is commodification and marketing. And side note, apparently, like, the NHL kind of has a thing for cryptids. Uh, you can see our uh, our Jersey Devil has morphed into the um, mascot for the New Jersey Devils, and our Yeti is serving as the mascot for the Colorado Avalanche. Although I think they changed it to a squirrel, which is... is way less cool and I don't know what they were thinking but you know it's it's what we have and this is how probably all of us interact with cryptids right like every local area has their cryptids which is like welcoming you to that area um, I live in Vermont and patrolling Lake Champlain we have our friendly champ uh, I know I am in virtual Indiana right now, but Indiana has plenty of these cryptids as well. You have the Meshek in Lake Manitou, and you have a group of little gnomish, goblinish, it depends on if you're on their good or bad side, apparently, uh, creatures called the Pukwudgie, which uh, live in Madison County in Mounds State Park. I think it's Mounds State Park, right? Sure. We'll go with that. So now based on what I've been saying and kind of the tone I've been taking about cryptids, you've probably guessed that I skew towards the skeptical side when it comes to things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. But there are plenty of cryptids that have been proven by scientific evidence. And it turns out things like the Kraken is the giant squid. And these, like, crazy sea serpents from mythology, like uh, Jormann, I'm not going to try and say the rest of that, because there's lots of consonants in a row, uh, um, like the uh, like the Leviathan, um, they are something called the oarfish. And if I have time at the end of this, I'll share my screen and show you pictures of these, because they're pretty cool. Um, but I want to uh, finish off here with a creature that is totally real, but extinct, and you can see it on my screen right now. But it is possible that this creature could have accounted for at least a portion of some of the lore we've talked about. So this, as you can see by my strategically placed title, is the Gigantopithecus. And this is an ancestor of modern orangutans that lived in China and Southeast Asia a really long time ago. And there is some debate, there's a lot of debate around uh, this. It's not like the most understood of things on the evolutionary timeline of primates that we know about, but, but we know enough to kind of make some assumptions. So it's likely that this animal came in at over nine feet and 600 pounds. There are some estimations that it was taller than 12 feet. There are some estimations that think that it was probably a little bit shorter than nine feet. Even at its shortest estimation, it's still a lot bigger than I would want to encounter 
ever. Um, a lot of depictions of Gigantopithecus will show it walking upright on two feet like we do, so bipedally, but more likely is that it walked on its uh, hands called knuckle walking like a gorilla would. But it was still able to like stand upright just like an orangutan would. Uh, there's also some debate as to when this went extinct, but there's some pretty good evidence that suggests that it could have, and I'm hedging my bets so much here because the fossil record's pretty incomplete, but it could have briefly overlapped with humans, as you can see here. Um, and since it's it's done in such great detail, it, it must be true. So for this thought experiment, we're going to assume that it is. Now, a lot of cryptid hunters would make a leap right now and state like, well, obviously some of these existed further into the future. And this is what is responsible for the Yeti and the big feet, big foots, big the large hairy man trope, right? And I am not suggesting that. I am absolutely not suggesting. I am unequivocally saying that that did not happen. But I can't deny, even with my skeptical mind, that if this, I'm rushing with my hand that you can't see, if this scene happened, the person that would just have stumbled across Gigantopithecus would have definitely experienced something that was unexpected, paradoxical, striking, and emotionally un upsetting, thus making Gigantopithecus worthy of mythification. And if that person was me, he would not have shut up about it for the rest of his life. So I am absolutely not prepared to submit the humble Gigantopithecus as evidence for Bigfoot or the Yeti, but I do see the possibility of this creature entering into our folklore and capable of traveling through time and space to this very moment. So to this person who stumbled upon Gigantopithecus and lived to tell the tale, we salute you. So the next time, and I will finish here, the next time you're wandering through the woods and you stumble upon a large creature just at the end of your vision, outside your view, I want to tell you that you probably did not find evidence of Bigfoot. I'm sorry. But you've probably found our elusive cryptid subtitle, the Anthropology of Cryptozoology, subtitled, It's Probably a Bear. Thank you so much, James. That was uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, I love the shout out to uh, Mount State Park. Uh, I saw a couple people, yay Anderson, uh, Madison County there and in the chat. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Jason Morgan to turn his screen and this is a fun, fun part of the talk, so enjoy this. <laughs> okay, so um, this right here, so my name is Jason Organ. Um, as Rufus said, I'm a, an associate professor of anatomy, cell biology, and physiology at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Um, one of the things that I do, in addition to teaching anatomy and, uh, and advising students and running a research lab, 
is uh, communicate with the public about science. And so today I want to tell you a little story about Wookiees. And the reason I want to talk about Wookiees is because um, of this this uh, food truck that normally parks itself right on Georgia Avenue, right outside of Gen Con. It also happens to park itself um, usually in front of my office building, <laughs> which is why I love it. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it is a fantastic food truck because they serve sandwiches on pretzel buns and they are just absolutely delicious. And in particular, they serve a, a sandwich. Um, actually, several of their sandwiches are actually na- uh, named after Star Wars aspects of Star Wars. Um, so they have a, a sandwich called the Ham Solo, for example. But the one that I particularly like is the Chewbacca. So the Chewbacca looks like that. <laughs> it's fantastic. Roast beef, some cheese, some Funyuns. Who doesn't love Funyuns on a sandwich, right? Some horseradish. It's just an absolutely delicious sandwich to eat. And, um, and because I'm a nerd, uh, one day while I was eating my Chewbacca, I thought to myself, I wonder how Chewbacca would eat a Chewbacca. So now I'm letting you in a little bit as to the, the constant struggle that's going on in my head. Um, so sorry to burden you with that, but I had to share because it's too much for me alone. But I wondered, how would Chewbacca eat a Chewbacca sandwich? And the reason I asked that question is that Chewbacca is thought to have, at least according to Wikipedia, is thought to have originated um, from inspiration from a dog or perhaps from a primate. And if Chewbacca is more like a dog, Chewbacca would eat and swallow in one way his own Chewbacca sandwich. And if he was a primate, like us, he would eat it in a different way. And he would chew and swallow in a different way. And so I thought, well, clearly there's some, you know, there's something to be thought of here. This is a thought experiment that is absolutely worth pursuing. And so the way that you can think about these things is um, through the idea of shared traits. So we know that evolution happens um, through speciation events. And what I mean by that is that usually we have two species um, that have diverged from a common ancestor. So, for example, this is what we call a phylogenetic tree um, or a cladogram. And it shows that the common ancestor of sharks and all the rest of these animals diverged from some time in the past here. And um, what made uh, this particular... Um, you know, uh, radiation important is that right here was the evolution of the bony skeleton. So everyone in this group has a bony skeleton to the exclusion of sharks. You can go further down this tree here um, and there's no directionality associated with this. It's just splitting events, but you can go down and say, okay, well, the evolution of four limbs happens at this junction. So everyone down here has four limbs to the exclusion of ray finned fish and sharks and so on and so forth. And so um, what I want to point out here right away is that the amniotic egg evolved right here um, at the divergence between crocodiles, dinosaurs, and birds on the one hand, and rodents, rabbits, primates on the other hand, and pretty much all mammals on this uh, on this clade here. Um, and so that settles definitively the question about which came first, the chicken or the egg. It's clear that the egg came before the chicken. And this is how scientists think about evolution. Um, But more often than not, you have probably encountered evolution that looks like this, which is different. 
Because if you look at uh, Pichu, Pikachu, and Riku, um, you will see that there is a linear evolution event here, which means that one evolves into the next and evolves into the next. And that is not how evolution works. Evolution works by splitting. So when we look at evolutionary relatedness, we're looking for those those big traits that are present in one group and not present in another group um, to help us understand how species have radiated. So I think it's important then to, to focus narrowly on um, mammals and the differences between primates on the one hand, and we are part of the primate clade here, uh, a group called hominids or um, that include us and um, all of our fossil ancestors, uh, and chimpanzees, I believe, are included in hominidae as well, um, our closest ancestor, um, to the exclusion of gorillas um, and orangutans, which are our next closest. So chimps and bonobos are pygmy, pygmy chimps, and humans and all of our fossil ancestors fall right here. We are different than this group called carnivora. So carnivora is actually an order of mammals um, that includes um, cats and dogs and bears and raccoons. We often use the word carnivore to refer to a meat eater, but that's not actually what the order carnivora means. Um, and I say that because uh, there are members of the order carnivora. For example, in the raccoon family, there is an animal called the kinkajou. Kinkajou is a really interesting raccoon relative, although if you ask Paris Hilton, it's a monkey and she loves it. She has one on her shoulder sometimes. If she's still relevant, I kind of dating myself with pop culture there a little bit. Nevertheless, um, not a primate. It is um, it is a carnivore, a member of the order carnivora. It's a member of the family of raccoons. Procyonidae, we call that. But it doesn't eat meat. 98% of its diet is fruit, mangoes in particular. Um, so carnivora doesn't necessarily mean that the animals are eating meat. What it means is they all are united by a common um, characteristic. And that characteristic that unites all of carnivora um, there are several of them, but, but one of the most diagnostic is the presence of what's called a carnassial molar, or a molar that is shaped like a serrated knife, and it allows animals to slice through meat. But again, it doesn't mean you have to eat meat, it just means you're capable of slicing that meat pretty well, if you have that, um, that particular trait. Primates do not have that. Primates are united by a whole suite of other characteristics that we're going to talk about in a minute. So within carnivora, there are two basic types. There's the filiformia, or the cat-like animals, and the caniformia, or the dog-like animals. So what we're interested in with regard to Chewbacca is whether or not he is more like a canid or more like a hominid, or in particular, whether he's more like a dog, more like a primate. So let's talk about the characteristics of dogs. So again, um, I talked uh, about carnivoran characteristic being uh, the one uniting character, the main uniting characteristic is um, the presence of a carnassial molar. Um, I alluded to the fact that there are several others. For example, certain uh, skull bones are fused in specific places and among all members of carnivora. Um, they all have a highly developed sense of smell, and this is important. They have non-retractable claws. Anyone who has a dog knows that your claw, the dog's claws aren't going to retract. Anyone who has a cat um, knows that the cat's claws come out at the worst possible time because they retract. Okay, so that's characteristics of dogs. Let's take a look at the characteristics of primates then. 
So primates have large brains relative to their body size. They have forward-facing eyes with overlapping visual fields, and we call that stereoscopic vision. So they're able to tell distance very well. Um, they also have a reduced sense of smell. So unlike carnivora, or unlike dogs, um, which have uh, a highly developed uh, sense of smell, primates don't have that. They've traded it off. In fact, they've lost some of their sense of smell to enhance their forward-facing eyes and improve their vision. And then primates have nails instead of claws on all or most of their digits. Okay, so very different than dogs. So then the question is, what about Wookiees? Well, again, going back to trusty old Wikipedia um, and also Animal Planet's animal icons. These are the two most important references um, in all of science, I think. Um, this is what we can say about Wookiees. So dog-like characteristics are in yellow here. There's one, keen sense of smell. Primate-like um, uh, characteristics are in red. So they have human-like bipedal locomotion, meaning they're walking around on two legs. Now, humans and their fossil relatives um, are the only uh, primates that are habitually walking around on two legs. Um, and so Wookiees sort of fall toward, you know, are in line with, the, um, with a specific part of the primate um, group, but not all. Um, but Wookiees have forward-facing eyes with um, stereoscopic vision. So they have overlapping visual fields and they have great eyesight. Um, and they have a large brain to body size um, ratio, excuse me, which some have said um, represents uh, or, or is correlated with high intelligence. Um, we know they're intelligent. They can speak a number of languages that do not require vocal nuance, but they cannot speak galactic basic standard. So they don't have human-like speech. I think that's important to know when we talk about, um, about chewing and swallowing, uh, which we will in just a minute. Then, in addition to these dog-like and um, primate-like characteristics, uh, we also know that Wookiees have disproportionately high strength for their body size. Um, that is not necessarily a primate trait, although um, I, uh, <laughs> I was talking with a very famous paleontologist once who told me a story about the, uh, an orangutan, a very sad story about an orangutan at the Cleveland Zoo. And this was back in the early 80s when um, not a lot of thought was being put into the kinds of structures that were housing animals at zoos. Um, we have come a long way since then. Um, and so this was a big sort of cinder block cage with bars in the front, but a hole at the top um, to an outside area. And this particular orangutan um, was morbidly obese, um, extremely obese. But uh, because of the way uh, orangutan muscles attach and because they are um, constantly climbing in trees, uh, this orangutan was able to stick its finger into the opening and pull its entire body weight up by one finger, look around with its head, and then lower itself back down. So all of that is to say that even though primates don't necessarily have disproportionately high strength for their body size, orangutans, chimps, gorillas, they could all rip your arms off, so stay away. Um, last two things I want to point out about Wookiees, they have retractable claws. So... Unlike dogs that have non-retractable claws, they have retractable claws. Unlike primates, they have claws. And then finally, the last one is opposable thumbs. And we often think of opposable thumbs being a uniquely human characteristic or a uniquely primate characteristic. 
Um, I'm here to tell you today that that is not true. Um, raccoons have opposable thumbs, and that's why raccoons will rule the earth um, after this pandemic, sadly. Okay, so these are what Wookiees look like. These are the characteristics that Wookiees have. So that brings us back to the question, how would Chewbacca eat a Chewbacca? Is he more dog-like or is he more primate-like? And I think the answer was pretty clear. He had more in common with primates than he did with dogs, even though he wasn't perfectly in line with what primates look like. So, um, incidentally, I should point out that... um, that Wikipedia actually says that he, um, that Chewbacca was conceived of um, as a mix between dogs and primates, um, even though there are more primate characteristics than there are dog characteristics. Um, and they were actually, that he was actually um, conceived of being Han Solo's flying mate, his co-pilot, um, because George Lucas had a dog um, named Indiana, which is also a line from uh, from uh, Indiana Jones' um and the Holy Grail, or whatever that name of that one was, the third one, um, where uh, where he says, we named the dog Indiana, right? That George Lucas's dog was actually named Indiana. So shout out for uh, for the Hoosier State. Um, and he was his co-pilot in his car all the time, sat in the front seat right next to him. So that's sort of the inspiration for Chewbacca. But knowing that Chewbacca is more primate-like than dog-like, it's still there's still a question about how Chewbacca might eat a Chewbacca sandwich. So what you're looking at here is a diagram of um, the airway and the foodway of a, of a human. And it's a, a cut right down sort of the center of the head so that you're looking, um, you're looking from the midline out at the side of the head. Okay, so it's cut in half, split open, and you're looking at um, the inside of the head here. And this is the oral cavity right here. This is the nasal cavity right here. This is where your COVID test is uh, probing if you get one. Um, they stick a little thing up here and uh, they start tickling your um, nasopharynx, which is uncomfortable. It's also where flu tests go too, by the way, um, at least some flu tests. Um, and what's important to know here is that the nasal um, cavity and the oral cavity converge in this region we call the pharynx, but the airway and the foodway cross over each other. And that is a recipe for disaster. Um, that is a recipe for disaster because it's possible for you to aspirate food. Now, why we would be designed this way is a great question. I think the answer is uh, clearly this is evidence that we weren't designed, but instead we evolved from from um, not such great precursor models. So evolution doesn't work by creating new things um, de novo every generation. It works by tinkering on last year's model. So, for example, if you look at a Ford Mustang from 1969 and you look at a Ford Mustang from, you know, 2020, um, they're not going to necessarily look the same, but you can actually step back through time and see where small modifications were made along the way, and then you can see how one is related to the other. That's kind of what we do with evolution when we look at traits and characteristics in species as well. Okay, so again, the airway and the foodway cross paths. That's terrible. Apparently, we didn't learn anything. When you cross the paths, bad things happen. And in this case, it's aspiration of food. So when you're eating and you're trying to swallow at the same time, um, or when you're when you're uh, swallowing, you can't breathe at the same time because you have to have this structure right here called the epiglottis cover over the airway um, so that the food will go down um, in the correct place, right? The air will come here, 
and the food will go there. And so the epiglottis will cover that over and will allow you to not aspirate your food. This is an adult. When you are a baby, you look like this, actually, where you have the epiglottis contacting the soft palate in the back of your mouth. And by doing that, it actually seals off the airway from the foodway so that food can pass around the sides and air can go down and you can't aspirate food. So if you look at a baby that's nursing, a nursing baby can breathe at the same time that it swallows. A human cannot do that. So why is this important? We're going to go back for a second. Well, one of the advantages of having this descent of the larynx relative to the base of the skull that happens during growth, because again, babies don't have this, but as the neck grows, the larynx drops down in the neck relative to the base of the skull. That allows for, um, for very nuanced speech patterns to occur. Um, we call them glottal speech. Um, and so you can make sounds um, that you couldn't make if you didn't have a descended larynx. So based on the fact that Chewbacca um, cannot have human or does not have human-like speech patterns, it's safe to, um, to hypothesize that he might have an epiglottis that's locked up closer to, um, to his soft palate than he would if he was a fully adult human. However, because he has more primate characteristics than he has dog characteristics, and this would be more like a dog characteristic, um, maybe the jury is still out. All of this is to say that um, that that I, I really didn't have a very fruitful um, thought experiment uh, when I started giving this some thought over uh, lunch. What I did have, however, was a fantastic sandwich from a fantastic food truck that I hope makes it through the pandemic. I hope you've learned a little bit about um, evolutionary biology today, phylogenetics. Um, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, um, you can follow me on Twitter at, uh, at OrganJM or um, at SciCom Plus, uh, which is the public library of science, science communication blog that um, I am one of the co-editors of. Um, I really appreciate your attention. I hope, uh, I hope you enjoyed the talk. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks for everybody's comments and questions as we've gone through. We're going to hop over to fantastic speaker, Matt Sowers. Really fantastic talk. Uh, mechanical engineer physics D and D uh, we're going to keep that fantasy string going uh, into this. So, I mean, I'm not going to talk too much. You guys don't want to hear from, from me. So um, I'm going to turn it over to Matt. Thanks. And uh, thanks for having me. Uh, just a quick splash screen of possibly relevant nerd cred. I played a pile of games for a really long ass time because I'm old and shit. And then uh, we've been, uh, got the mechanical engineering degree at Purdue because, you know, we're Hoosier nerds. So, Go, go Hoosier-powered nerds. Um, I uh, picked up a few patents along the way. I made some stuff. So uh, you put that degree at least to good use for building things. So uh, uh, take that nerd interest that want to build things and some storytelling and just kind of steep that together. And that's how you become a professional and a personal nerd. So um, this inspired me then for uh, tonight's talk, talking specifically about... Um, specifically about the physics of fantasy, uh, looking at traps and role-playing games. So uh, the thing is, is that they don't have to be hard, right? I mean, they, they there's just, there's not a whole lot to it. And a lot of it's just gravity and some other stuff. So, so let's set up the scenario here for you. And we'll talk about this by providing an example. And we'll talk our ways through 
what we're looking at. So, you carry on the trail of the assassins, fleeing town into the open rolling plains. Their trail follows a footpath over the next rise to a slight depression crossed with a deep hollowway, with a large boulder on one side sticking up to the level of the surrounding landscape. It's top flattened and scooped slightly to form a cairn, a channel cut in its face to lead the floor of the hollowway, which disappears from sight as your approach doesn't let you see inside the hollowway channel. As you circle around to peer down the hallway from either end, you can see the base of the cairn channel ends in an undercut where a thick oak barrel acting as a cistern rests wedged under it to collect rainwater. Across from it is an opening low and wide leading to an underground cave structure. So let's take a look at this from a side view and we'll take a look at what the adventurers see as they venture down from the top level here in towards the hallway, or should I say, I can turn my pointer on from the top level here as they walk around down into the hallway and find themselves faced with this. You see a low, wide cavern entrance hewn in the rock from human stone-cutting tools. A rusty maul lays unused near the entrance, cast aside at the corner. The corridor is nearly eight feet wide, maybe seven feet tall, oval, slightly in cross-section, with the middle tamped down from decades of use. The corridor slopes downward steadily past the limits of your sight. So as people are faced with this, um, though, they're not 100% sure what's going on. And the key is to leave people clues as to how they can discover things. So what I'm going to do is walk you through this in a way that the dwarf with stone cunning who sees this might be able to recognize what's going on. So it's just a freestanding rock. Clearly, this is not a thing that's obvious to the rest of the party. They've got uh, grasses that grow off the top around this hallway. There's maybe a bunch of birds' nests or something that's all jacked up back in here. And then there's this stone that's sitting, kind of holding the weight of the thing with a fulcrum down here. So if anybody's had physics in high school, you can remember that I might be interested in the center of gravity of an object where its center of mass appears to be. If the center of mass is not right on the line of what's supporting it, it's just off a bit. It tends to lean or could even fall over. So to keep that from happening, somebody might have just put a brace there that they didn't really want to draw everybody's attention to. So they put a barrel in the front here, maybe flatten the top of the stone and carve down the front of it. Maybe so it's covered in water and algae and is maybe slippery. In any case, there's an oddly located old mall just sitting here by the entrance. I wonder what that could possibly be for. And then as we peer down here, there's this strangely loose gravel all here on this tamped down path. And we can't see much further. Of course, there's, there's more to come, but our intrepid heroes have yet to figure that out. So with our stone cutting, we can maybe see that this is actually a freestanding stone. And if, man, if that thing that's holding it up there was just gone, this thing would fall forward. Not only would it fall forward, but it'd be sliding on its front surface, which is, you know, maybe covered in algae and slippery or falls onto some loose gravel that's on a packed, well-worn path and allows this stone to fall in the way and, well, plug a hole. So if this is six to seven feet across in an oval path and this is maybe, oh, I don't know, 10 feet tall, that sort of thing. It's a real heavy stone. I don't know exactly how heavy. I didn't actually do the math on it. I'm just going to go with real heavy. Heavy enough to trap people in there for a very long time. And of course, the last piece of this being that as this surface is laying down sideways and this is plugging this hole, if we were to tunnel underneath it, 
then as soon as we cleared the point where we might be able to dig out from around it or under it, it will just slip back down into the hole that we dug and crush whoever's digging out the hole underneath while pinning the top firmer against the surface and wedging the thing in place. Now, traps have to be simple because, you know, we don't want... We don't want to be too difficult for everyone to figure out how it goes. So we'll write some rules in the background. And this is really important for those of you who are DMs who are watching this or game masters, any role-playing game, and you want to do something devious, like sort of nearly kill the characters without actually killing them, or at least having them have the sensation of the fear of death. That's really all we're going for here. So if they look in the barrel, they'll notice a thick, oak beam that's either in the barrel depths or behind it wedged up against there we'll use some fifth edition mechanics for those of my fellow fifth edition nerds in the audience where we've got a dc 15 we can do and invest some sort of investigation check or observation that we're going to see if we can figure this out or maybe we're a dwarf with stone cunning so you throw some experience at them this is scaled for people who are fifth level at the time so that it's really hard to do any sort of useful magic at level five that would get you out of this pickle so it does pay attention or it does pay to pay attention on the way in and everybody should get experience for being subjected to something as horrific as this now it's not really there to keep you in or uh, to keep you out it's more like to keep you in so there's got to be some reason to want to go down there in the first place we were following our assassins earlier and we watched them go down this tunnel and we can't really see down here but the further we get down the closer we get to seeing there's some door here this fascinating conspicuously uh, fascinatingly conspicuous door and while this door is here it's actually the door that we saw these guys go through and a matter of fact in the case where i used this for the campaign it was in uh there's tunnels that go back there and some other features like barracks and stuff but there's no other way out this is a hole in the ground so now we have the chance uh, as they begin to move forward 30 feet down the hallway you spy an opening hewn from the corridor uh, to your left about 30 feet ahead the sloping corridor ahead of you ends in a large round door of some six feet wide with large iron hinges on the right and a heavy iron ring set on the left side of the door so we have this door here what we can't see is that there's a leather flap that's covering it which is just right where a ballista bolt could come out those unfamiliar with siege engines of medieval times a ballista is a giant crossbow basically a horizontally lean bow that you use to energize a giant arrow in this case the big arrow is a ballista bolt which is basically a spear uh and it's about the size of a spear and it would feel like a spear coming through you real fast um as far as siege engines go it's probably one of the lighter and easier ones to move uh, considering its effect, which is why it's tucked down here at the bottom of a tunnel with this door over it and this little flap to allow the bolt to come through. Strung down along the floor then are a few iron rings with a trip wire that comes across the hall in and out of the page right where we're at here. And when they trip on the trip wire, which is under tension, that pulls the string all the way down here, which pulls the ratchet and releases the trigger mechanism, thus causing the bolt to fly forward. When it does so, hooked up to the brace of the crossbow itself as the bow part of it moves, that pulls a string, which drops this ring from here, and a bell hangs. So you can hear the bell go off. So there's a door alarm, which it's okay if people coming down the hallway see, but by the time they see the bell, 
generally speaking, it's real bad. So we have to give them a chance to get out of this. So they have to be able to see it. They have to be able to understand it. Um, let's take a look at what happens next. Oh, yeah. So here's how not to die. Um, as they advance down the corridor, uh, it helps to have somebody with a pretty high passive perception or the ability to roll some perception dice or... I always like to give people a test. As it turns out, uh, nobody was really uh, paying much attention coming down this hall, uh, except for the uh, druid. Druid saving the party there. Uh, druid happened to say, "Hey, what's this tripwire doing here?" And they were like, "What? Wait, what? What tripwire?" So, turns out that it was it would have been real bad. They continued sneaking down the hallway. The bad guys, of course, through this door, worked their way all the way down here discovered the door once they got close enough i give them another chance at that perception check then they can see the leather flap that's there discover the trap now in this case there were bad guys in here and they weren't sure what to do about the bad guys and the bad guys were coming so they quickly opened the door jumped in here and everyone was kind of standing around the entire area where the crossbow excuse me where the uh, ballista was one of the bad guys came walking up the tunnel and they just pulled the trigger and shot him in the back so i mean Sometimes you get to do that. Plus, you get the experience for figuring out how to disarm it and, of course, uh, discovering it and that sort of thing. So there's not any hard and fast rules about how to set up things, but the key is keeping it simple. I didn't have to do any math to figure out how to set this thing up, you know, and there's rules that already exist that tell me how to, you know, what's what's the sorts of things that I need to shoot a ballista that exists in a book somewhere. So I don't really have to like figure that out for the world that this game is supposed to be played in. However, I do need to understand a little bit about the physics that says, you know, for the short distance I need this to fly, it's going to move in a straight line. I, for previous reasons, wanted a downhill slope in the first place. This downhill slope is a little bit disorienting. And of course, as you're maybe only six feet tall or even five feet tall hallway here, people are kind of bent over and, you know, crouched together single file. So whoever's up front is definitely going to have a bad day. So with that in mind, I wanted to show you the overall scene as it was when these players walked across it and they saw somebody come running down the hollow way and run into this tunnel here. So they cautiously came down and kind of took all this in. The warlock of the party actually happened to have a, a movable rod with him and laid the immovable rod and the groove on the front of this and set it frozen there so it would hold the rock in place in case they needed to leave and of course the bad guys know that if they have somebody that gets shot down here they can dispatch somebody down in this area they can run out grab them all knock the log out of the way and then the plug falls in there trapping whoever's in there long enough that they might not be able to dig themselves out of this stone without having any stone cutting tools on them and surely they didn't leave any in their hideout so a few key takeaways I'd like to at least cover here. Um, the first one is that uh, gravity pulls down all the time, whether you want it to or not. Um, <laughs> and uh, players always need to be aware of that. Uh, use that to your advantage. If you're trying to figure out, you know, some way of dealing with, uh, uh, you know, players that you want to put their characters through a little bit of fear, uh, you know, in a completely uncontrollable matter it's a can you think your way through a puzzle uh give them a puzzle to solve and gravity is one of my favorite things to do it's uh 
rock climbers that will tell you that uh, going up is generally pretty safe. And of course, spelunkers, or should I say cavers, will tell you going down is generally very dangerous because you can jump down to a place that you cannot climb out of, but you can generally always fall off of a thing you can climb on top of. So (laughs) with that in mind, the most horrifying traps I can always think of are generally underground, and that's a great place to put them. Use gravity, put them at the bottom of a hole, that kind of thing. uh, the second thing is, is that springs are great until they're, until they aren't, you know, until they fail, generally speaking. In the case of a ballista, yeah, they're going to have to service that thing and keep it paid attention to because the string will stretch, the material will go after a while. Not that it's super important for your campaign or whatever, but the fact is, is this isn't the sort of trap that's going to sit around for centuries, you know, for them to discover in this ancient temple that's protected by all these ancient traps of whatever culture was previously there. That's all going to have to be like moving stone stuff or whatever. Think, think, I guess Indiana Jones. It's another Indiana Jones reference. Why not? So, um, then, uh, I would say the, uh, key behind devising traps that are interesting is that players are curious so you should reward them for curiosity reward them for discovery reward them for figuring things out i know that's not physics lessons but that's really that's good gaming right there is what that is you know if you're a game master always give them something for being curious give them something for discovering things and give them something for figuring it out and they you know they won't necessarily get all the things they might not figure it out they finally put the whole trap together after they had gone down here and shot, you know, opened this door and they're like, what the hell's a ballista doing back here? And there's like a dude coming out. They're like, Oh yeah, that's, that's not great. (laughs) They figured it out very quickly. So, um, when you come at this, don't be afraid to try all sorts of different stuff when you're designing this stuff, right? So your your knowledge of science currently surpasses that of most folks about 500 years ago, which is where all this technology is coming from. So if you're sticking to that level of technology, you have a really good shot at coming up with some very clever stuff that people haven't seen before. The biggest problems with you know traps and traps compendiums are there things that people can read. So it's cool to look at it for ideas and then see just how dangerous some some of the old stuff is, especially the old Mike Stackpole uh, Grimtooth traps for just, you know, murder on a stick. So uh, in any case, um, keep it keep it fair and keep it fun is always part of traps too. make stuff not instantly deadly if you can avoid it. And if it is dangerous, then it's, you know, you're, you're just trying to kill them. Uh, but, you know dangerous if they do stupid things that's fair that's fair give them a trap i gave i gave them one at one point that was actually like the key to kind of solving the trap was in a puzzle uh written in you know some language all the way around the room that they could read so they like read it once and then like the dude who could read it all was like i'm gonna go check out this shiny thing in the middle of the room and start messing with it and sure enough that was the wrong thing to do so had they taken the time to look around they could have figured it out but that was on them they deserve what they got in any case uh i hope you had a good uh listening to the talk here uh i wanted to uh give a special shout out to indiana sciences for keeping it real uh here for uh, uh gen con uh, i hope everybody enjoyed it and i hope you have all a good evening that was the science of science fiction presented by indiana sciences thank you for having me Thank you to the other presenters. Thank you for everyone who was in attendance that evening. It was so much fun, and I would love to do it again whenever you want. Uh, Normally, this is when I would shout out 
the River Power podcast feel, but they get all the attention in the outro. So instead, I am going to tell you to go over to the Indiana Sciences YouTube page and watch this video because there is an entire Q&A section that I cut out because you're going to have to go and look at their stuff to see that. There were some great questions. We talked at length about Quarian Anatomy from the Mass Effect franchise, so if you are a fan of that, like I am, you will not want to miss that. Again, this is over at the Indiana Sciences YouTube page. Follow them on all their socials. They are the reason you're getting to listen to this podcast tonight. I will be back in a week. Have a great night.